If I get loud, it'll go crazy. Um, Good morning. Hey, welcome especially to our online guests. We are glad that you are with us today. It's a joy to have you here. Um, You will notice if you followed the e-bulletin the past weeks that we're supposed to have a baptism service today. It's not happening right now. It's happening next week. So if you came just for the baptisms, psych, it's next week. And uh, that'll be great. So we're looking forward to that service at that time. So brothers and sisters, this is our final sermon. Can we come down, please? This is too loud for me. Um, It's our final sermon in the book of 1 Peter, and we have come through 10 weeks together of time in this book. And I want to highlight some brief highlights, some themes of the main book before we read this last passage of the book together this morning. And the overarching themes, the three of them that have characterized the book so far, are first, identity. We are bound together in Christ for being remade into his image. We're called to be his people in this world. Christ has called us to these things. The second main theme of the book is exile and suffering. As citizens of God's kingdom, we find ourselves displaced in the world. We don't quite belong. We don't quite fit in. We're not supposed to quite fit in. And the world doesn't play by God's rules, and so that creates an occasion for pinch and discomfort. And then third, this thing we called uh, the call to the Z-axis, living as, uh, as a supernatural people in a secular world, living according to God's rules in a world that is two-dimensional and flat. Now, last week, Peter drew our attention uh, to our ethics as God's people and to the ethics of shepherds and pastors. Those were the focuses of last week. And I read those two passages together because they elegantly frame the work of the church. Uh, This week, we come to Peter's closing words. I spent time last couple weeks thinking, how am I going to end this series? What is it I'm supposed to say? And I was trying to think up important things to say and what should be done. And as usual, the answer was, of course, in the text itself. And as I looked at the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, I realized, no, these are the things I'm supposed to say at the end. They're right here. And so Peter's closing comments, he'll turn to three themes that round out our study and the book of 1 Peter quite nicely. He's going to speak about humility, about spiritual warfare, and about community. And those will be our focuses for this final sermon in the series today. I'd like to read our passage for today. I will read the first verses of it. I read overlap from last week. Uh, So some of this is repeat, but it gives us some context. So in the book of 1 Peter, I'm going to read from chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 for us now. This is what Peter writes. Therefore... I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all you all who are in Christ. And with that, we have read the entire book of 1 Peter as a church. Doesn't it feel nice to go through a book of the Bible like that? Well, as with last week, <clears throat> we're going to spend some time going through this uh, more verse by verse this time, some phrases by phrases, because the phrases lead us to it. <clears throat> and we're going to focus on these comments on humility first, followed by spiritual warfare, and followed by community. So let's begin with, begin with humility, which are these uh, verses 5, 6, and 7, where Peter again writes, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Some comments to make about this. In the verses that we read today, all 14 verses, there were six commands. Remember, I talk about these command forms where Peter can tell us to do things. And I'm going to note them as we go through, but they don't really provide a kind of uh, structure or architecture for the passage. I'm just going to say, here's another command that Peter has given to us. Uh, the first command was right here at the beginning in uh, verse A, chapter 5, verse A. You younger men, be subject. That's the first command. You younger men, likewise, be subject. Okay? And uh, that's this command. Now, important, the very first word of the passage in Greek is actually the word likewise. So the, in, in the Greek paragraph, the first word is likewise, younger men be subject. And it puts that at the foreground. And the likewise is kind of funny because he hasn't given a command that precedes this, at least not an obvious one. Uh, but actually, he has. And that's why one of the reasons we read chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So let's look at that once again briefly. Therefore, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. So that's the command. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And here's the key thing. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So it seems the word likewise means that the command to younger men to be subject to elders is similar to the command to pastors to be subject to the chief shepherd. Okay? So shepherding well means recognizing that I am a servant of the king shepherd. I don't get to have my own, I don't get to lord it over, don't get to be a power broker, don't get to do these things, okay? And so here's the parallel. Younger men in the church are subject to older men as older men are demonstrably subject to Christ demonstrably subject to Lord Christ. So I model humility as the local pastor by being subject to Christ, the chief shepherd, and young men imitate that humility by being subject to their local authority, which would be me in this case. Now, Peter is commanding humility. Let's, uh, there's a few questions here. One, why single out younger men? It's kind of an interesting thing. Why pick this out of the hole? It's, it doesn't seem to have been in sight. It's kind of a weird thing to say. What does he mean? Well, my suspicion, I don't have the verse up on screen, but in chapter 4, verse 15, last week we talked about there were four ways of taking power in your own hands, right? Murder, theft, criminality, and insurrection, okay? You could be a hothead for the kingdom. And this is a common temptation, right? I'm going to take action where my, the generation in front of me didn't get it right, Yeah? Right? Young people ready to go, right? Those boomers screwed up the world. We're going to make it right, okay? Power, and when I've got control, I'm going to make it happen. Well, that means this advice to younger men makes a kind of sense. It's a check against that ambition, that drive, that desire to, to do it on your own, to make it happen on your own way. And that is fundamentally the wrong spirit with which to approach leadership. 
And so what I want to say to you is that leaders in the church are qualified by their submission to Christ. Not by your power, not by your ego, not by your competence, not by your great ideas, right? Not by your sense of vision. No, leaders in the church are qualified by their submission to Christ. And that's why Peter is saying these words to the elder role and to the people in the wings, waiting to get control, waiting to make changes. Hey, if you're not submitted to Christ, you have no place in the driver's seat. That's what Peter seems to be saying. Okay. So let's move to the second part of verse 5, uh, where Peter makes this command, where it's a, it is a command to be humble, and this command becomes clearer. And then he commands us specifically to be humble. Chapter 5, the second part of the verse says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, he's expanded. First, it was younger men. Now, it's all y'all, okay? Everybody has to submit yourselves to this stuff. And he frames this command in the language of clothing, because the command here is, be clothed. Be clothed with humility. I was wondering about this metaphor. I've got some ideas. I don't know that I want to go to town on them, but uh, there's something kind of gentle and elegant, like be robed in humility, be dressed in something noble. Maybe it's a bit more like, you've ever talked about having a thinking hat? Put your thinking cap on. Put your humility robes on for being in community. Aside, we were, we, um, were talking to our kids one day. They were all in the car, and we said, okay, kids, it's time to put your thinking caps on, or thinking hats on. And my youngest, Lucy, said, I don't have a hat. And that was, sorry, it's a great moment. Um, it's something, though, that you choose to do, something that's active, something that's not, not uh, fake and put on, but something you are doing for the sake of getting along with other people. And this means that humility here at the beginning isn't about debasing yourself, but it's about choosing to wear certain behaviors outwardly that show our commitment to the Lord and one another. I will put backseat to my ambitions for the sake of this community, right? And that's clothing myself with humility. It's a precondition for getting along. The next part of verse 5 is actually a quote from Proverbs 3.34. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, there was a quote from the Proverbs in the previous passage as well. As well and, and once again, it seems to point to wisdom. If you're going to be wise in community, you're going to be wise as a people of God, humility is going to have to be part of that wisdom. Now, to pull this out a little further, the proud, God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to people who are filled with their own sense of position. Opposed to people who are in love with their position at the expense of other people. He's opposed to people who love their power and what they can do with their power rather than seeing it as service for the people of God. He's opposed to people who will run roughshod over the slow or the weak or the struggling, right? I like to think of humility as moving at the speed of the slowest. When the Israelites left Egypt, there was a whole range of ages. Did the young people get to go ahead and leave all the straggling seniors behind? No, they moved at one pace. Humility means moving at the speed of the slowest as we could move together as a people, okay? And that's part of this. And so the humble then are those who trust in God's power, according to the proverb. And this then becomes quite clear in the next two verses, verses six and seven. So Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, that says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, here's a third command in this verse. This time, it's quite explicit. Humble yourselves. Three times, Peter's commanded you to be humble. Do you think we got the message yet? You think maybe we're a little dense sometimes about the call to be humble? He says it three times. Young men, subject yourselves. Everyone, clothe yourselves in humility. Now, humble yourselves. 
Um, it makes me wonder. I don't, I don't know if I want to go with this or not. It makes me wonder. You know, Peter was rebuked by Jesus three times for denying him. Had to be asked three times, do you love me, tend my sheep? Three times he commands us to be humble. Is there something in Peter's story at the background of this? I'm not sure. How are we going to do this? Are we going to humble ourselves by beating ourselves up? Is that how to do it? Is it by debasing ourselves, right? Is it by making ourselves look bad and, and talking badly and, oh, I'm, I'm so, we're so stupid and bad and no good and there's nothing good in me and um, if I could say enough bad things about myself, maybe God will be pleased with me, okay, which I think sometimes happens. Well, for Peter, the answer appears to be right here in our text. And there's a couple things going on. They're highlighted for you right here. Um, one of the ways to be humble is first to surrender to the power of the mighty hand of God. Surrender to the power of the mighty hand of God. He's in control. He's in charge. Give him that control. Somehow, he's revealing his mighty power in our present suffering. And especially given what we said about suffering, if you are suffering because you resemble and look like Christ in the world, then your suffering is exactly his will for you at this time. He's ordained it. So subject yourself to that. Let him be in control of these things. But then he gives us a means for doing this further. And one of the ways we surrender this power is by casting our cares upon him. Cast your cares upon him. There's some curious grammar. I don't want to get too technical. But sometimes, uh, sometimes Greek words can add, um, uh, what's the word? I wrote it down here. They can, they can carry some logic. So there's the command, um, with the command here, humble yourselves. And it looks like it might be humble yourselves by means of casting your cares upon him. Um, and I, I wouldn't highlight this because it's so technical, except we get to see it again in a few more verses where he seems to do it twice in this passage. So I highlight it here for that reason. In other words, you cast your cares upon God. You throw your worries upon him. You humble yourself by divesting yourself of control over things. I'm not in control. I'm going to trust not only that God is sovereign, but that he's got this. So here's the lesson is that we find humility when we throw the power and control of our lives over to God. We're proud when we're in control. I got this, God. I don't need your help. I can do it on my own. That's why they say pride cometh before the fall. <laughs> You're not going to make it. And the more you fork that power over to God, the more you grow in humility, the more he leads you in these things. So to be explicit, the proud trust in their own power. The humble trust God's power. Okay? So we'll become humble as we learn to trust God by casting our cares upon him. This little tag at the end, 7b, because he cares for you, because he cares for you. I know songs about this. My wife knows songs about this. I know she was singing it when I read it this morning. I could hear it. I could hear the humming from all the way over here, honey. Thank you. But, um, and you may have memorized this verse, and you may love it. It may be great for you. But unfortunately, the word cares here is not cares as in loves and has affection for you. Cast all your cares about on him because he loves you so much. It's more like uh, someone who has cares, someone who has worries and anxieties, uh, he's got the cares of the world on his shoulder. It doesn't mean he's got the love of the world. He's got the concerns of the world. And they're saying, throw all these things upon God because it's his business. It's, it's his concern. The things that he, that's his uh, portfolio of tasks to look after you. So <laughs> upscale your problems to him. Is your boss bullying you? Well, that's his business. Are you having trouble with your spouse? It's his business. Are you worried about rent money or food money? Guess whose business it is? It's his business. 
Are you worried about the eternal destiny of people you love who don't know Christ? It's his business. Worried about your kids who are not walking in faith anymore? That's his business. Fork the problems over to him. It's his portfolio, not yours. And we sin when we act in pride and think, oh, I can control these things. Ah, no, you can't. No, you can't. Any place, here's the lesson, any place where you are tempted to take matters into your own hands is a place you have to throw over to God. Any place you're tempted to take matters into your own hands is a place you have to throw over. You have to throw it on him. Okay? And that's the path towards humility. So let me summarize these first verses on humility. Peter closes this letter to suffering Christians of Asia Minor with three separate commands to be humble. Be humble, be humble, be humble. And his vision for humility is to trust radically in the power of God rather than our power. This is how Peter sees humility acting out in our Christian life. So let's shift, because Peter shifts into spiritual warfare. And the next two verses capture a a kind of highlight of this. So uh, let me read these. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Uh, Two more commands. Be sober, stay alert, okay? Uh, Be be level-headed and be on the lookout are the two things. Uh, The second time in the book, Peter's been explicit about being sober. um, And that first time, it had to do with um, being ready for the Passover call at any moment in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Uh, There may be some parallels here. There, it was the call to holiness. Here's the call to watchfulness, okay? God is calling. You got to watch out for the other guy. Uh, And that seems to be what's going on. And this begins to frame the commands because you are vulnerable when you are intoxicated, Let's just be honest about it. You are vulnerable when intoxicated. You are psychologically vulnerable. You are spiritually vulnerable. You are physically vulnerable. If you want to avoid spiritual attack, limit your vulnerabilities. That's wise, okay? And then he says, be on the lookout. Just keep your eyes open. Don't close them. Ah, there's nothing going on. Nothing gonna happen. And um, we have to stand our ground. The third command comes up in a minute. It's stand firm. That's, we have to stand our ground. You're vulnerable when you give in. Verses 8 and 9a in focus, we'll highlight these for a second. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Why is this pronoun important? Resist him. Because Peter, and we with Peter, affirm the existence of an agent of personal evil in the world. We believe there is an agent of evil who has mind and capacity to plan, and thoughts, and he's invested in ruining you, okay? It's not a fiction. We believe these things. And so Peter believes, and I believe with him, that we have a real enemy who wants to undermine our faith in Christ. And with that in mind, I want to talk for a few minutes about spiritual warfare, okay? Now, I brought with me today uh, one of my, I've got several different copies of C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Uh, this is a fun copy uh, for, I, don't, I shouldn't geek out too much. This is fun because it's from 1957. It's the, um, I love the printing editions. This is the, let's see here. This is the 23rd printing of the book. So many people wanted it. It's amazing. And apparently, the Archbishop of Vancouver, W.M. Duke, does anybody remember his name? Gave these out at Christmas in 1957. So anyway, there you go. I've got a little card uh, from the Archbishop of Vancouver. Um, it's great to have old books. You never know what you're going to find in them. It could be a lot of fun. So let me just read some words from the preface from here. You've got some of these in your notes right below you. Lewis writes, there are two, this is C.S. Lewis speaking. 
There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Okay? No, there's no devil at all. Remember, those of you who watch The Usual Suspects, Kaiser Soze, the greatest trick the devil ever performed was to convince the world he didn't exist. All right? Okay? Some of you have seen that movie. Some of you are going to watch it this afternoon. All right? He goes on. This is not in your notes. They, the, the devils themselves, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The sort of script which is used in this book can very easily obtained by anyone who has once learned the knack, but ill-disposed or excitable people who might make the bad, bad use of it shall not learn it from me. And then he says, readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. Okay? So there's a series of uh, letters in this book from a senior devil to a junior devil advising on how do I tempt and how do I ruin the faith. Uh, Lewis said of this book that he hated writing it. It's the one book he hated writing most because the time he spent writing it, he had to think like the evil one. He just, he hated it. But it was his most famous and most popular book very quickly. He spoke to, he hit something. So here's what I want to say. Warfare is real and we can be either consumed with it or neglectful of it. We could be obsessed by it or we can say it's not there at all. Now there are some cultural differences. In the, in the kind of modern West, warfare is often uh, psychological right? Focuses on things like depression and despair and suicide. Uh, in the majority world, um, spiritual warfare is often material and physical. Shows up in, in oppression and manifestations. It's different kinds of things. Um, and I don't think either narrative is better than the other. I think the devil is an opportunist, and he will attack us in our disbelief and therefore worry our psychology, or he'll attack other people in their belief and bother them that way. He's just an opportunist. That's what's going on. And so what I want to say is that you will be tempted. Alignment with the kingdom of God makes you a target. And if you're filling in the blanks, this is it. Spiritual warfare is an inevitable part of our Christian life. It's going to happen. So we've got to think about it. I like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. You may know this passage well. Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay? We're not fighting against just human powers. We're fighting against something supernatural. A couple things to say. The devil, <clears throat> good news. Excuse me. Good news. Devil's not omnipresent. God everywhere at once. Jesus could be every, Jesus has the power of God. He could be everywhere at once. The devil, one place at a time. So most likely, none of you has ever been tempted by the actual devil. Just his minions, okay? The devil's, as my friend used to say, the devil's busy with Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, okay? He's got, well, not anymore, because they're to glory. He's busy, with, he's busy with some grandmother praying in Ulaanbaatar for her kids, right? That's who he's, because she's dangerous, more dangerous than us in those ways. Right? He's, he's focused on the threats. And so we've got minions to deal with. Okay? Uh, I would like to say, um, I was thinking about this. I think I will do, mentioning screw tape letters, um, I think I will do, a, if there's interest, we could do a book study on this in the new year. So if there's some people who want to read the screw tape letters with me, uh, talk to me, and we'll find a way to do this, and we'll spend about five weeks uh, going through the book. Okay, that's my little thing. Let's talk about the devil's tactics for a minute. Uh, they're going to go up on the screen. They won't go away. It'll be okay, so don't panic. I'm going to highlight four tactics from the devil this morning. 
Tactic number one is isolation. Isolation. This is Satan's most significant and powerful tactic. The devil, a roaring lion, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Okay? He prowls around. He's prowling around the campfire where everybody's safe and when you're together. But if he can get you alone, ah, if he can get you alone, then he can begin to work on you. He can't do much more than, with the group than sit around and scare you, but he can scare you into running off on your own. Then he can begin to chip away. He can scare you by filling you with fear. He can begin to sow seeds of doubt and confusion. And in his toolkit of fear, I think he works at you especially in the next three tactics. The next tactic after isolation is prevarication. Prevarication. I was talking this week and someone said, I don't know what prevarication is. That's okay, I'll tell you right now. An outright lie is something that's a true falsehood. A prevarication is a bending of the truth. It's half truth, half lie. Mm -hmm. Which is worse? Which is the worst lie? Is the lie, you know, God isn't real. That's a lie. Or is God really what you think he is? Ooh, God is real, but he's different. Much more dangerous, much more deadly. And so he twists the truth, okay? Remember the Garden of Eden. Eden, Satan says to Eve, did God really say? Half-truth, God did speak. He's real, he's given you commands, but are you sure you understand them? Okay. It's a prevarication. And so when he gets you alone, he begins to whisper half-truths. Will God really care for you? If you're gonna trust in him, will he really care for your needs? You sure about that? Okay. Can he really be trusted? Hmm? Right. Maybe it'd be a little better to do some things on your own. Is he really loving after all? I mean, look at all the stuff in the world. Can you be sure God loves these ways? You know, those concerns you have look pretty big. You should think about them some more. Got a lot on your plate. Time to worry. In fact, if you, have you thought about yourself? Are you really worth saving? Right? Half-truths, half-truths, lies, deceptions. He's going to get you alone. He's going to begin to whisper these things. And then within these half-truths, there's the third thing he does, which is temptation. He gets you alone. He begins to whisper lies, and then he likes to tempt you. All right? And so he's going to turn to outright temptations. Rather than waiting for God, wouldn't it be easier just to do it on your own? Right? Rather than waiting for him to show you what's supposed to happen, just go ahead and take action on your own. Not much can happen of it, will it? Right? Don't bother God with that. He's too busy. Okay? Kind of a false courtesy, right? You know, since he's not really attending to you, it won't be that big deal if you do this thing. He's not watching. So go ahead. No one's, no one's going to notice if you cheat a little bit here or tell that little lie or let your anger out. You're at home. You should be yourself. Where else can you be yourself but at home? Right? Or you've had a hard day. Just, just click on those links. Just buy that thing. It's okay. No one's watching. One of the devil's most powerful lies and temptations today is actually through God's love. He prevaricates. He tells a half-truth. Well, God is love, he whispers. So everything you do in love has to be right, doesn't it? Half true, not fully true. If it's love, how can it be wrong? Because God is love. Love is love, after all. So if it feels right in your heart, how could it be wrong? That's Satan. Okay? It's not God. And then fourth, <clears throat> he gets you alone, he lies, he tempts you, and then he condemns you. Okay? 
He goads you on. He's like, come on, do it, do it, do it. I bet you could do it. It'll be great. No one's knowing. Oh, look what you did. Switches immediately into condemnation after temptation. Now, God sends us a spirit of guilt to motivate us to repent. Satan sends a spirit of shame that chains us and cripples us and keeps us from wanting to seek God. And so then he uses his condemnation to bolster the half-truths. See, you never were good enough. Remember when I told you you weren't good enough? Now you, I, yeah, I was right, wasn't I? And you try, I'm speaking as the devil at the moment, Sarah. So yes. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Satan will get you alone, and he will tell you a lie, and he will tempt you, and he will condemn you. These are his powers. How do you resist an enemy like this? How do you resist someone who has thousands of years' experience at ruining humans? You're not equipped, right? None of you has the resources that, I can do it. Ah. None of you has the personal resources to do this. And Peter's answer, answer excuse me, is that in addition to staying clear-headed and looking out, is stay in community. Let's look at this last section on community. Verses 9 through 14, uh, 9 through 11 first. Resist him, the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in all the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I mentioned that funny grammar thing from verses 6 and 7, where Peter described how to humble ourselves by casting. And the second verb explains, so the second time is another place where this case is. So we resist, stand firm, and this is by means of knowing. The command is resist, and the way to do it is by means of knowing the community. So lean into the community to know how to do this. In other words, if you're filling in the blanks, the best weapon against the evil one is community. It's the best weapon. Satan is able to tempt Eve because he got her alone. Satan tries to tempt Jesus because he has him alone and vulnerable, hungry, tired, alone, isolated. If he was ever going to give up, that was the moment. In fact, Satan is bound at that moment. Anyway, Satan is able to deceive us because he gets us alone. He can lie to you because you've forgotten the truth of God by being alone. You're not in community refreshing it. He can tempt you because you're trying to bear the burden of obedience on your own. You're not meant to do that. And he can condemn you only because you're no longer hearing the words of forgiveness spoken by the church to one another in community. Like Sophia prayed beautifully this morning. In Christ we've been forgiven. You need to hear that and be reminded of it in community. Doubt, fear, anxiety, discouragement, these are the normal experiences of our life. Everybody's going to have these things, but they become crippling when we think that we are alone in our doubts, alone in our fears, alone in our anxieties, alone in our discouragements. And when we stand in the community, stand firm in community, we have power to strengthen one another in faith and in life. Okay? And it is this memory of this wide community of faith, both the living and the dead, those who've gone before us and those who are behind us, those around the world who are fighting this fight together. In that community, we are reminded that Christ it is who calls us, perfects us, confirms us, and establishes us. And that is the truth we are constantly trying to bear to one another. Final words of the book re-echo this language of community, verses 12 through 14. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, another command, 
She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Brief comments. Sylvanus, probably the letter carrier. Through Sylvanus, I've written to you. So Peter wrote the letter, handed it to Sylvanus. Sylvanus came, brought it in person. So there's a personal connection with the author, okay? And so now he's known. He's in the room affirming that Peter's done this. He also mentions my son, Mark. Um, people have speculated a relationship between Peter and Mark um, as a, like, a, like a somehow related as kin. Uh, we don't know if that's the case. My son is a common language for someone, my younger, my younger follower, Mark, in this way. But uh, Mark is writing his gospel, and he's with Peter in Rome, and uh, he's apparently known to the Christians in Asia Minor. So another voice you know. Hey, be comforted. Mark's here too, and he sends his love. Okay. And then he says, we who are in Babylon, Rome, Babylon, Rome, probably a code for this. The whole church in Rome is with you in this. And it might be worse where we are than where you are, <laughs> right? So there's, a, there's a, bit of, a bit of nod there in these things. And with that, I believe it's the most important final lesson for First Peter of all. Nobody is meant to do this Christian life alone. None of you is meant to do it alone. Exile can only work when we have each other. Staying focused on Christ only works when we're calling to each other to do this. And we can only live the ethics of God's kingdom when we have each other. Okay? So don't get siphoned off and dragged off and terrified by the roaring lion. Stand firm together in our faith. Be humble. Fight the good fight. Stay together. Now we're going to close here in a minute, and I'm going to invite our musicians to come and take their places. But as I close today, I actually want to have us take a time of prayer for spiritual warfare. And I want us to pray into some of these things. Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm going to highlight our prayer team members. So Daniel and Leah. There they are. There she is. <laughs> That's good. And then Dave and Day are... Where are Dave and Day? Okay, Dave and Day are going to be here. Daniel and Leah, would you guys mind going up to the balcony? You guys can head on up there. Hey, they're available to pray with you for anything. So are any of our pastors and staff and elders and small group leaders. Anyone's free to pray with you. But um, here's what I'm going to have us do. I'm going to have you pick a posture of prayer. Um, I'm going to ask most of you to close your eyes, okay? And um, if you're able to, um, you can open your hands in front of you. Quiet your hearts for a moment before the Lord. I ask the Holy Spirit of the living God to be present in this room in a special way right now. The Spirit who knows every heart and every thought and every mind. He knows where you were this morning. He knows where you were last night. He knows your heart. He knows the fears of your heart. He knows where you are feeling under attack. You are known. So I pray first into that loneliness. For men and women today who feel deeply alone. Alone in your home. Alone in your family. I rebuke the voice of Satan that whispers, you have no one. I pray against those of you who are, there's a well of self-hatred within you deep, deep, green and poisonous well of self-hatred. That's not Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke that hatred. 
The voice of anger, Lord, I name next. The spirit that fights and bites and is bitter. And I want to name not only the anger, but the source of the anger, Lord. For some of you, for some of you, it was neglectful parents. For some of you, it's been a long and bitter marriage. For some of you, it's a deep disappointment. For some of you, it's an anger at God for the loss of a loved one. I name the spirit of anger and rebuke it in the name of Jesus Christ. Some of you are troubled by terrible dreams. You're afraid to sleep at night. I name the spirits that torment you in the name of Jesus Christ to rebuke them. Some of you, even this morning, have had thoughts of suicide. You've thought about ending your life. And the voice of the evil one has whispered, you're not worth it. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus Christ. You are worth it. I name the temptations that plague all of humanity. I name the temptations of sex, of power, of money, of self-fulfillment, of getting our way, whatever it costs. And where Satan has voiced these temptations, I rebuke him in the name of Jesus Christ. Lastly, I want to name spiritual heritage. Some of you have inherited things from your families. You've inherited things that are wicked, things you didn't know about. You didn't ask for them, but they were done in your presence. And they have troubled you. Some of you, there's an object in your house that's been handed on from someone, and somehow in this moment you know it's got to go. And I ask for the strengthening power of the Lord Jesus to equip you to throw it away. Holy Spirit of the living God, you are here. Minister to these, your people. Comfort them. Bind us together as one. Show your power today in the breaking of old bonds and bring us to new life as your people. These things I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Amen. We get to sing. And I just want to remind you that the devil hates music. So sing loud. Let's stand.